0: Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds On Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, You've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so pleased to introduce you to therapist and best selling author Megan Devine, who is joining me here on today's episode. Megan is a grief advocate dedicated to helping us live through the things we never thought we'd face. She has created a vibrant online community that helps people survive some of the hardest experiences of their lives. Her book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand, and her podcast, Hereafter, help people learn the skills they need to love themselves and each other better. In a world that tells us that grieving the death of someone you love is an illness, needing treatment, Megan offers a different perspective, one that encourages us to re-examine our relationship with love, loss, heartbreak, and community. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. We discuss Megan's life and her work, and we address a wonderful question from a well-meaning listener who wants to learn how to better support a friend who has suffered a painful loss. I hope it's helpful to hear us talk through this so that you can feel better equipped to support your friends as they navigate grief or to communicate your needs to your crew when you are facing unimaginable loss yourself. Megan, I am so excited to have you here on Reimagining Love. Thank you so much. Yeah, you are so welcome. I know we've followed each other on Instagram for
1: a while, so it's it's great to actually be able to speak to each other without a screen. Well, kind of a screen. But Right, this is
0: our first uh, you guys are getting to listen to our first date.
1: <laughs> I love dates from Instagram, man. I mean, don't at me on that one everybody, but I I love well-curated dates
0: from Instagram. Let's put it. Seriously, yes. For all of the beef that I have with social media and the challenges, it certainly has been a road for me to so many wonderful new connections in my world. And now you. So Megan, we start every guest expert conversation on Reimagining Love with this relational self-awareness question. So can I lay it on you? Are you ready for it? Lay it on me. I'm ready. I would love for us to get to hear what is a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships, and what has it been teaching you lately?
1: I love this question. I don't know if this is allowed or not, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take some liberties with this question because when I first hear the question, I come up with something related to my relationship with myself. Mm-hmm. And since this is a relationship question, and you you say choose an important relationship, like my relationship with myself is the one I'm going to have through all of my existence. So this is an important one for me. And I, I think the growing edge for me in my relationship with myself right now is really more of a relationship with joy. And what does that look like now at this point in my life? You and I were talking a little bit before we started rolling here about how well supported I feel these days and how different that is from sort of previous versions of my life. So It's really started to bring up that question for me of what does joy look like for me? What does ease look like for me in this life? And I have an opportunity to answer those questions for myself in really, um, this is maybe weird language here, but like in a really voluptuous, Mm -hmm. wonderful way that I didn't have access to previously. So I don't know the answer to it, which is why I think it's a really interesting growth edge or growing edge for me. I don't I don't know the answer to that question yeah. yet. I love that I get to ask myself that question. It's a real privilege to be able to do that. And I'm I'm super excited to see what joy and ease look like in this life for me right now.
0: Are you watching yourself at moments resist it or turn it down or doubt it? Are you watching yourself do some funky stuff with joy and ease? Absolutely.
1: I mean, funky stuff all the time. Welcome to mm-hmm. my brain um it's it's that habitual thinking right of like grumpiness and sort of a cynicism mm-hmm. in harder moments where i'm not i haven't been eating or sleeping well or getting interrupted too much and so that sort of default mode of grumpy cynical uh, you don't have time for this you don't have time to explore this you're too busy there's too much work to be done there's this 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 and this and having to catch those habitual responses that were logical and reasonable mm-hmm in previous instances, right? Like for various reasons, but just catching that, that habit of self Mm -hmm. that says, this is not something that you have time for, that there are things that are more important right now. And really checking myself and understanding that I actually have this luxury now and that maybe it's not even a luxury, maybe Hmm. it's a necessity and a necessity that I can actually answer for myself. That's actually, hmm, I like this. It was never, it's never a luxury, but I feel like now I have the means to support what is a necessity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I have the resources to support that necessity for joy and ease. And it's reminding myself that that support support is actually there and it's real and it's stable. Whereas previously in the past, it wasn't there in the same way. So there's that habit of Like the habit of scarcity is a hard one to break when you have abundance. Right,
0: right, right. Well, and I imagine the support is external things like community, financial, logistics, But also I wonder if it's internal support because there's something kind of frightening about joy, right? Something vulnerable about joy. So I wonder if there's, if when you say support, if it's also like internal support that you are better able to sit with joy or like flex your muscles around holding joy. Mm.
1: I think it's a trust issue. Right, can I trust it this time? Uh-huh. Am I willing to trust it this time? It doesn't necessarily at this moment as we're discussing it, it doesn't necessarily feel vulnerable to me or okay. scary in that way. I think it's more of a a joy trust fall. Are you willing to explore this? Are you willing to ask these questions? There's a bravery involved in it that I've certainly felt in my life before and I like I know the payoff for that kind of joyful bravery. I've lived it before. It disappeared for a few years and it's going to come back in a different form. But it really is that let's play with this. Can we trust it? Like, let's explore this. There's a playfulness that I want for myself and want back in this new incarnation of joy and ease. And sometimes I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it just feels like a lot of effort. Uh uh (laughs) Like,
0: uh
1: uh (laughs) man, like, really? Now, on top of everything else, I have to figure out where the freaking joy lives. (laughs) Awesome. I mean, this is. This is the reality of being a time-bound creature, right? Like yeah. sometimes you do actually have to deal with the health insurance and the dog that really wants to go for a walk and you, you can't sit there and explore yeah. joy. So I think it's going to be an interesting and frustrating thing.
0: Well, and it will be really interesting to see where your connection with joy takes you in your ongoing work around grief because you are... Yeah. Ridiculously gifted around inviting us to understand and get acquainted with grief. And I know that this journey for you started by surviving the unsurvivable, the un, well, I shouldn't say the unimaginable because you, I want to ask you later about something that you unpack for us around what it means when we all say, I can't imagine what you've been through, but you were initiated into grief by surviving something horrendous. Yeah.
1: Yes. Mm. The hazing was mm-hmm. intense. This is probably a good time to sort of introduce who I am and what I Please. do and the work and the Please do. The short phrase that I've been playing with is I work in public health with a focus on grief advocacy and education, which is sort of health industry jargon <laughs> for I spend my time thinking about reading about talking about listening to some of the most heartbreaking and horrendous things that happen to humans. So the death of people we care about or a life altering illness or injury, the things that sort of clearly break life into before and after. The things that we like to pretend will never happen to us. Like this is the the sea that I swim in for an odd water analogy. But you alluded to my hazing into this world. So I've been a psychotherapist for a little over 20 years. I'm going to try to do my abbreviated origin story here. But uh, 13 years ago, I was in private practice. I worked mostly with other professional caregivers. So doctors, massage therapists, psychotherapists who were either wrestling with their own trauma histories or Wrestling with what they saw on the job and how much it colored their worldview. So, doctors who were working in pediatric cancer wards and feeling like they couldn't talk about what they saw without risking losing their jobs. So, I wasn't a stranger yeah. to grief. And I, so I was in private practice. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you being a therapist as well. Like, I was getting tired of sitting and listening mm-hmm. and feeling like I was just a mm-hmm. talking head, right? Sitting and listening and sitting and listening and sitting and listening. So I wanted to take a break. My partner was going to take over financial support of our family so that I could go close my practice and explore what was next. In fact, a week before the event that I'm getting to, uh, a week before that happened, we were at dinner and I said, you know, I just I don't want to be in the pain business anymore. I don't want to be in the pain business anymore. I want to be in the joy business. We never got a chance to explore what that would look like for me because less than a week after that dinner conversation where I said I didn't want to be in the pain business anymore, Matt died in an accident. He was three months away from his 40th birthday. I was 38 at the time. And that threw me into a world of grief I never knew existed. Mm -hmm. Even with all of my personal experience and all of my professional experience, the things that I had seen, I witnessed and provided care and support around as a professional, nothing compared to what I experienced that day at the accident scene and in the days and weeks and months and, frankly, years (laughs) afterwards. And I actually did close my practice and I quit. I actually worked on dairy farms for two Uh years because I couldn't stand being around Uh humans. I didn't have anything to say. And I came back to this work because I didn't want anybody to come into the world of grief after me and find the unskilled support that I encountered. I didn't want anybody else to hear, at least you had him as yeah. long as you did. He died doing something he loved. Maybe you should just get married again. Like, I didn't want anyone else to experience the cruel and callous world that I did. And I, I knew that I could do something about that. And that is what I have spent the last 10 years doing, nine years doing, is really speaking into that nightmare, both for people who have survived Mm -hmm. something that divides life into before and after, but also for the friends and family and the clinicians and the doctors and the funeral directors and everybody who works in the concentric rings around somebody whose life has just dissolved to help them feel like they are actually delivering the support that they most want to give. We just don't talk about what it really means to stand there at the giant crater in the middle of somebody's life and not tell them that it's heavenly. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like we just, we don't know how to talk about stuff without fixing it. And I, I feel like that's really where the work is. How do we stand there in the catastrophe and not stick a rainbow on it?
0: It's where you begin your books. Beautiful. It is so magnificent. Where you start us is you basically say we end up on these two paths, like where we either are cheerleading for people and saying, you got to move on, or we are saying it's all over and it's all doomed. And you invite us to go on a different path, right?
1: Yeah. The reality of the middle path, right? What Mm -hmm. you're describing there, like the opening lines of the book are like, this really is as bad as you think. Mm -hmm. We try to apply the a binary to everything human. And like binary only works for code. Like stop (laughs) with a fucking binary. It doesn't work for gender or sexuality or emotions. Like it works for nothing. Oh my Mm. gosh. Reductive things do not work for humanity. Anyway, we can rant about that for hours, but let's stick on, uh, on focus here. So like we have this idea that you are either completely healed from some massive loss in your life and it can be a death. It can be an illness or an injury or something else that you define as life altering for yourself. We either say you move past it, put it behind you and come back better than before and like sort of rise in this transformational Phoenix thing and Mm -hmm. be amazing or you fail that and you're like rocking in the corner in your basement wearing sackcloth and widow's weeds for all existence. Like we those are your only Mm -hmm. two options. That is not where humans live. Humans live in like my mom died or my friend got cancer and I am showing up and I am paying attention to myself and the others around me as best I can and I have crappy days and I have better days like humans live in the middle like let's just tell the truth about that and when we start telling the truth about how hard it is to be human then we can really start talking about how do we support each other in that giant gray area because that's where all of us (laughs) live
0: I wanted to ask you, what do we get wrong about grief? And is that what is at the heart of it? That what we get wrong about grief is we try to wedge it into a binary that there's only two possibilities? What do we tell us? What do we get wrong? I
1: think the most succinct way that I can say what do we get wrong about grief is that we think there's something wrong with mm-hmm. grief.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: We think that there is something wrong with anything that is not positive, sunny, optimistic, looking on the bright side resilience, right? Like, resilience is what we're all supposed to be. Like, healthcare workers, you just need to, like, draw on your love for the profession and find your resilience. No, how about we dismantle the systems that make you have to be resilient? Like, let's right. talk about that. This idea that grief is wrong is what's wrong with how we approach mm-hmm. grief. Just expanding out a lens here in case anybody hears me talking about grief and they're thinking, like, this doesn't yep. apply to me because nobody I care about has died or has died recently. Honestly, like grief is the foundation of being mm-hmm. human. Grief is a really big bucket term for this whole spectrum of things are not the way that I wish they were. And that is from like, I wish I'd gotten to work on time today to I wish I didn't lose seven family members during this pandemic. Like their grief is everywhere. We're going to get into this later, I'm sure. But like grief exists because love exists.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: And for me love is the foundation of being human. Mm -hmm. Right. So therefore, I mean, I don't know which math thing this would be, but it's definitely a math term because love is the foundation of being human and grief is part of love. Therefore, grief is also part of the foundation of being human.
0: The transitive property of equality. Thank you.
1: I knew it was in there.
0: (laughs) My geography, my geometry teacher would be so proud right now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Excellent. And my geometry teacher would not be surprised.
0: <laughs> Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you: Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Say it again. Say it again, Megan. Because
1: love is the foundation of being human and because grief is part of love, therefore grief is also part of the foundation of being Mm -hmm. human. Nothing about being human is wrong. Mm -hmm. Being human is... Messy and amazing and beautiful and fucking terrifying and unpredictable. And all of those things are just what it means to be here and to be alive. So when we say that grief is a problem, we're saying that being human is a problem. And honestly, this is where all of our problems come from. Yes, that's right. We hear pain all Mm -hmm. the time. We just don't recognize it as pain. So if you're standing in line at the coffee shop wearing your mask, socially distanced, you know, you get to the front of the line and you ask the barista how their day is going and they say, not that great. You know, I got here late. My dog was up all night throwing up and now I'm like worried about them because I can't get them to the vet until later. And I spilled coffee on somebody's (laughs) shoes. Like they just kind of say all this stuff. And we say, at least the sun is shining. Ah, you're right. We just heard a whole bunch of grief. Yep. And we skipped right Mm -hmm. over it. Mm -hmm. This is why I say like grief is every day. So, You know, I'm harping on this, but I just like, I've, I've seen people clock out of a conversation about grief thinking it doesn't apply to
0: them. I just want to grab people and be like, it so applies to you. It applies to everyone. If we didn't know that pre pandemic, we certainly know it now, right? For some of us, you know, depending on how much privilege we occupy, life in the pandemic may really be the first time we have like lived through a collective grief experience. So Absolutely. you you are inviting us, which I think is so important, to have a wider lens about what is grief. And it's hard, you know, as you widen that lens, it becomes harder and harder to think about things that aren't grief in some way, shape, or form. Welcome to my world, yes. But then the other dimension is sort of the very, very personal grief, which was your loss of your partner, to the big, 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 wide grief, which is collective grief, which is this, you know, for example. The pandemic. And so there are resonances there too, right? Of what it is to grieve yes. in an interior way and what it is to grieve in a communal way.
1: Absolutely. One of the questions that I get asked most often in the media these days is Has the pandemic made us better at grief? And my answer is actually no. So that's kind of a weird thing for a grief educator to say. And it sounds really dismal. But here's the thing I don't think it's yet made us better, in air quotes here. I don't think it's made it, us better at grief what I think the pandemic has done is made us, more of us, aware that the ways that we have talked about grief and dealt with grief and decided what to do about grief, I think that many, many more of us have realized that those old ways of doing things don't work. So I think that the sort of disenfranchisement of the resilience model or looking on the bright side or practicing gratitude, like all of the things that we do, sort of habitually, individually, and culturally when somebody is going through grief, I think that more of us understand that that stuff is trash. (laughs) Right. I don't think we get to that vision that I personally hold of like everybody being really skilled with the awkward conversations around grief, but like we don't get there until more people give up the ghost of the myth of positive thinking or resilience or gratitude. Mm. So this isn't the way that I wanted a cultural revolution around grief and emotional liter- literacy right. to happen. There are many of us working in this field of grief literacy that have been like doing this work for a really long time. And I remember when the pandemic first started, so we had this meeting, sort of an in- an industry insider meeting. Sounds <laughs> so special. It really was. Um, but this meeting in March or April of 2020, like this, this is not the moment we wanted. Yeah. And this is the moment we have. Mm-hmm. And so many of us have trained for this and worked for this cultural moment where sort of the focus is on grief. What are we going to do with it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like We've been waiting for people to pay attention to grief, and this is not how we wanted this boat to arrive, but here it is. Let's get Mm -hmm. on it. You know, I, I hope that the tide has started to shift. I hope that more people have, as they become disillusioned with the look on the bright side, at least you, whatever sort of reductive way of looking at human existence, I hope that as more people really personally feel... The shortcomings of that approach, that they become curious about other ways to yep. live and relate and connect and talk about this stuff. I hope that that dissatisfaction turns into curiosity
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that we use that curiosity to build the world that we want. When I
0: imagine shedding the old way of either like pity, right, that everything is different now, or look on the bright side and we vision what we want instead. The word that comes up for me is empathy. And I'm thinking about the, you know, how I spend a lot of my week is sitting with couples and couples therapy. And so much of it is helping people resist the urge to explain or rationalize or justify and to just work on presence, being present to your partner's pain rather than responding to it, explaining it, helping them see it differently, right? To just bring presence, attunement, and empathy. And you write so beautifully about that when we are when we are called to support someone who is grieving, right? That that is the heart of it is I'm here.
1: Yeah. And that's really, really hard to do, right? It's so much easier to offer a solution. Mm-hmm. If we can fix it, then we don't have to sit with the reality of pain. Mm-hmm. I think at some really core, deep level, we know that we are powerless to fix somebody else's pain, whether that is you're sitting with somebody whose child died or you're sitting with your partner in a couple's counseling session and you know what they're asking for and it's not something you can give, mm-hmm. right? Rather than sitting with that unfixable pain, it is much easier to offer a solution. It is much easier if we're talking about interpersonal dynamics. It's much easier to fault find. Mm-hmm. Than it is to sit with the helplessness of knowing that this person that you care about is asking for something that you can't or won't give. Sitting with that kind of pain is not easy. Like, I understand why people avoid it, because it's not easy.
0: It requires an immense amount of self-regulation, right? Because that is because we're hardwired for empathy. So you write in your book about how we say, I can't imagine And the reason we say, we say that to somebody who's grieving, I can't imagine. The reason we say that, you write, is actually we can. The limbic system means we feel with someone else. This hurts, so we shut down empathy. We deny connection. We shift into judgment and blame. It's an emotionally protective instinct. Yeah. I love that you pulled that
1: out of the book, because that's one of my absolute favorite passages. Getting towards the end of that chapter, I talk about, like, we are designed to feel with each other that is yeah you know, i'm not a, i need to do my disclaimer i am not a neuroscientist <laughs> sometimes i say things wrong but like the way that i understand our limbic systems is like that is the part that feels with others other mammals especially and your body your limbic system your nervous system starts to imagine what that would be like to lose somebody you love in such a sudden horrific way and that is deeply uncomfortable so we shut it down. We distance ourselves, right? Like that would never happen to me because I don't go to that part of town. I always wear a seatbelt. I always wear a helmet. I would never do such a thing. I'm a safe driver. Like we do all of these things to help our limbic system stop imagining. We do all of these things to help our brains disidentify with the pain in front of us because it is far too easy to imagine ourselves in that same position. The reality is like I have this I haven't had to use this example for a while, but like I have this theory, not yet scientifically proven. (laughs) Any researchers out there hit me up because I would love to play with this. But I have this theory that the more atypical, random, the loss or the death or the illness, the more judgment that person hears. So, for example, um, Matt, my partner, was an amazing athlete, like half mountain goat. (laughs) Like He could climb up the face of waterfalls. He was amazing. And. He drowned in our home river and nobody could understand how such a fit, skilled, observant person could be swept away by the river like that. So like the one and only news story I read before I banned all news stories from entering my my site was they blamed him for his own death because he wasn't wearing a life jacket to go Uh swimming. And then the comments under it were blaming me. For being things like, you know, so stupid, you let him oh, get a, like, just, just yeah, stupid human yeah, yeah. crap. But the, um, here's what you yeah. did wrong. I would never do that. Therefore, I'm safe. So what we're always looking for there is to prove to ourselves that we are safe and the people that we care about are safe. And that is by, you know, that psychological distancing of I am not you. Yeah. When your nervous system and your limbic system is giving you the message that I am you. I can be you very easily on any ordinary Tuesday, I can be you. And that is fucking terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to shut that Mm -hmm. down.
0: It's so hard. And I have chills because I'm thinking about how deeply that will land for listeners, because in the moment of Mm -hmm. reading that comment or hearing someone's judgment, it can feel so convincing to the recipient, right? Like, oh my God, I should have, and he should have, and why didn't I, and why didn't he? It can feel so convincing. And so that framing that you are giving us, it is unscientifically proven, but given the little baby hairs on my neck standing up as you talk about it, like there's some science right there, right? Yeah. It is a projection. It is a desperate attempt to, as you're saying, to distance and to, and to feed an illusion of safety that... Yeah. And it is an illusion of safety. Like, I don't want listeners to hear
1: that. And, you know, again, with the binary, like, don't go to, well, obviously, it would never happen to me. People do make mm-hmm. stupid choices, mm-hmm. and, like more distancing, mm-hmm. hello, mm-hmm. flashing lights, or to, to sort of sink into terror. Right. We don't want that binary of, I presume that I am safe and everybody I love is safe because I always make good choices. Versus the other side of that binary or the flip side of that binary is like, being alive is too mm-hmm. risky. And so I'm never going to leave my house. I'm never going to talk to anybody. Sometimes even with our best efforts, life dissolves Mm -hmm. or changes. And, you know, the the shitty things that you say to other people trying to protect yourself or maintain your cognitive distance, it's nothing they haven't said to themselves. That's right. There's nothing wrong with you for having that impulse, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Something feels uncomfortable and terrifying. I want to move away from it. Like, that makes sense. It's being aware that you're doing it. Starting that practice of being aware that you're doing it. Oh, I'm hearing this story and I recognize that the stuff that wants to fly out of my mouth right now is asking you why you didn't do X, Y, and Z, or the self talk that I'm doing to myself. I would have done it differently. Just take a step outside of that and recognize what you're doing. Oh, I'm doing that thing. Mm -hmm. I'm doing that thing that I do when this loss or this experience is hitting too close to home for me and it's making me feel really scared and nervous in the world. What are some other choices I could make, given the fear that's coming up for me right now? I have a choice. I can like make a judgment and distance, or I can maybe make some other choices.
0: I love that, right? Because we don't have to be responsible for all of the different thoughts and fantasies and images that come into our minds. But we can develop, as you're saying, that practice of noticing where our mind goes understandably, right? You've talked us through some of the neurophysiology of why our mind would go to that place of judgment, explanation, storytelling in order to keep us safe. And so we can notice that process. And in the noticing, we slow our mouths down so that then we can try a different choice. And the different choice is presence and empathy and just offering care.
1: Yeah. I love that. Slow your mouth down is sort of a thing that I feel like I should have on the wall. Here's the thing. I want to add one thing to that, though, is you don't always have to like, oh, I recognize what I'm doing. The thing that's called for here is just for me to be empathetic and present. Sometimes you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. I want to respect people's limits for whatever they are. Maybe this is intersecting with something in your own personal life that is too tender to be able to show up In this moment, in the way that you would love to be present, sometimes it's just the wrong place, right? Like you don't have this time to dive into this and be present because there's something else that you need to attend to. Those things are okay, too. The awareness of the impulse is what's important. And then being able to make choices. Sometimes the choice is like, actually, you know what? I just want to practice showing up and being present and feeling helpless and knowing that helpless is okay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's the choice. Sometimes the choice is like, I really hear what you're saying. It's bringing up some tough stuff for me, which has nothing to do with you, but it's making me be less present for you at this time. I would love to take a break right now. Mm. That's amazing. This isn't always that you need to push yourself into something that's feeling a little bit outside of your grasp right now. It really is the awareness and then the choice, understanding What's happening in that moment and being able to make a skilled choice for yourself and for the person in front of you at that time? It sounds like I'm making things extra super complicated. But again, I go to like human being human is complicated. This really is much more simple and clear in practice. Like you don't want to hijack the person's, what they're going through in that moment and sort of turn the lens over to yourself. When you identify that you need something in that moment, you need to go go out and find it from one of your supporters rather than going into the person at the center of that issue. I really encourage people to practice. To go back to that example that I gave earlier about, you know, you ask your barista how their day is going and they say not that good, blah, blah, blah. That's your moment to practice. Yep. That is your moment to hear a statement of pain and to not make it better for them. But just to say something like, that sounds really hard. I'm sorry that's happening for you.
0: Beautiful. That sounds really hard. I'm sorry that's happening for you. And it doesn't, it also doesn't have to be, what can I do? Do you want me to come over? You know, it does no, not it have doesn't. to be. I think that's the other thing is that we sometimes will downgrade or minimize the impact of empathy. And we will instead offer, it's another kind of offering solution, right? Let me take over for it you. Is. So it's just validation and witnessing that is an offering. It doesn't need to extend into.
1: Yeah, don't underestimate the power of acknowledgement. Acknowledgement is is very often the only medicine or support we can offer, right? I'm sorry that's happening. Mm -hmm. I can't change it. I can't change it.
0: Okay, Megan, I'm watching our time and I want us to move into our listener questions. Yeah. So we've got a question that comes in from Anna in Italy, and she uses she, her pronouns. And she writes to us, I would love to ask you a question regarding how to approach a friend that is dealing with the loss of her mother As this is a very sensitive topic, I see a lot of friends we have in common avoiding the topic completely. However, there is this elephant in the room, and I think it's time for us to address the grief as we notice that this friend of ours has not really processed the death of her mom. We love our friend dearly, and we would love for her to open up if she feels like it and seek proper help. Any tips are very welcome. Thank you for the work you're putting into this. It's very appreciated. Okay, so Megan, as you listen to Anna's question, what stands out to you?
1: That question is loaded with judgment.
0: Mm-hmm. Anna, we're sending you so much love. Anna, you are not alone and you are speaking for a lot of people. Okay, so help us, help us identify the <laughs> judgment. This is why I'm starting with the rough stuff. Maybe I should say
1: there are two main things I hear in this. I hear love yes. for your friend and I hear judgment. So the judgment that I hear in there is my friends and I don't feel like mm-hmm. she's processing it. There's this implied judgment there that your friend isn't grieving the loss of her mom correctly, that you need her to open up more, that you need her to get proper help. The the qualifier of proper in there is sort of a, a yellow flag. Yeah. It is time for us to talk about this. So there is a centering of the supporter's timeline mm-hmm. over the griever's timeline. It's time to talk mm-hmm. about this. One, let's sort of peel this back to the love underneath it, right? Like we definitely hear that Anna cares about her friend. The group of friends really care about her. So the first thing I would do is is um, just some awareness of not right, not wrong, but it sounds like supporters here, the friends here have an idea of what the friend should be doing. So spend a little bit of time before you go and talk to your friend here. Spend a little time about, like, what do you feel like healthy grieving would look like for her? Mm -hmm. What are your expectations for your friend? Right. What do you feel like you would need to see happening to feel like she's getting proper Mm -hmm. help? That the friend is really processing, to use the word that you used, to be opening up about it. Like, before you go to your friend, maybe have a conversation with yourself, with the friend group. What would proper grief look like mm-hmm. right that's a step i think that most people miss because we think we have we have this idea of like you should be doing x y and z and the thing to remember here is that grief belongs to the griever anna's anna's friend lost their mom they lost their mom how they navigate that how they carry that is going to be unique and individual to them and we want to support that unique expression of grief We don't want to come in from the outside and say, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, you still have photographs up, you're still talking about her, you're not really coming out and partying or going to clubs, which probably public health shouldn't be doing anyway. um, You're not the self you used to be, and we want that self back. So there's there's a lot of assessment that we make from the outside, but really we need to let the grieving person lead. Mm -hmm. So rather than coming in with, here's what we expect to see out of you, how can we help you get there? a more effective, more kind and loving response might be to go to your friend, probably one-on-one and not as yep, a whole elephant intervention. pack. You know, maybe not everybody, no interventions here, but like to come to your friend and say, you know, I've noticed that we don't talk about your mom very much. And I wonder how you feel yeah. about that, right? We want to lead with curiosity, not condemnation, even well-meaning, loving, kind condemnation, because that's sort of the way it's going to land for the grieving person is you think I'm doing this wrong. And that you have a better idea how to live without my mom than I do. So we want to lead with curiosity, and again, that's things like you know, I know this this is a big change for you, a big loss for you, and and I I don't know how you're feeling mm. about it, and I I don't know how I can best support you and care for you inside of it. Can we have a conversation about that?
0: It's a beautiful opening. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, really, really good thing to do. You can even say things like. I've noticed that, like, because of the ways that I've experienced grief or the things that I've learned about grief, like, I noticed that I had some expectations for what this would be like for you. And I'm trying to correct those by being curious instead of coming up with solutions for you. I wonder if that's working for you or, you know, Mm -hmm. tell me, like, what's today Mm -hmm. like? So, you know, again, curiosity over condemnation. It is okay to name the elephant in the room, name the awkward in the room. I don't know how to support you. In this, and I'm noticing that I have a lot of ideas about what grief should look like, but I don't know what your grief looks like. When we open a conversation like that, we help our grieving person that we care about, we help them understand that um, we are going to let them lead and that we do want to be here for them. We're just going to kind of be wonky about it sometimes. Like if you lead with awkward, you don't have to mm-hmm. be perfect.
0: It may very well be that Anna's friend has sort of read the room. She's read the yes. crew. And so she has zipped up her grief because she has some hypotheses about how her grief may land in the friend group. And that's again, mm-hmm. not to be critical, but just to be, I think sometimes it's, it can be really easy for us to be, to be sort of blind to uh, the impact that we're having on the people around us. So it yes. may be that, that Anna's friend has kind of read it and she's positioned her, ourselves. So I love all the language you're giving Anna yeah. that is curious. That is like meta, right? So it's like a level above. It's sort of talking about talking about the grief. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's a process conversation. It invites honest friend to say, okay, are you available for some feedback? Because, you know, I have these three incidents that happened early on when my mom first died that kind of gave me the message from you all that it wasn't safe to talk about it here, you know? And so, and that might be. Yeah. You got to be willing to hear
1: that feedback. This is the thing. Like, If you really want to be supportive, you have to be willing to hear that what you have been doing isn't helping. If you're not willing to hear that uncomfortable feedback, then you're not actually interested in helping. You're interested in being seen as helpful. Those are different things. And I know that can be really hard to hear when your heart is in the right place. But this is the thing is that love and support is messy and it's uncomfortable. And that means you're doing it right. That's
0: right. Right. That's right. I also
1: love, really love what you said there about like, you know, this friend may have read the room. They may have had some early experiences with judgment or misunderstanding, and they just don't have the emotional bandwidth to educate Mm -hmm. their helpers. Not right, not wrong. That's just the thing. They may also just have personal stories that they bring with them, right? You mentioned earlier when we were talking about something else, like I think when we were talking about couples counseling, like we learn things throughout our lives. We are products of our family systems. We're products of our culture. There may be something in this friend that has nothing to do with the friend group. The friend group may have been always open and welcoming mm-hmm. and non judgmental. And yet, this friend has learned for whatever reason not to go into emotionally vulnerable territory with other yeah. people. Something that I want to point out here is that you can give the most highly skilled, empathetic, truly caring, and curious support. And still not get a friend (laughs) to open up to you. That's not a failure, right? We just want to respect everybody's boundaries. We go back to like being alive and human is really messy. But we have to to accept, I don't want to talk about this as a valid answer.
0: There's a world in which perhaps this friend loves being with Anna in the crew because it gives her a bit of permission to tap into joy, to tap into pleasure, right? I I wonder if that's, and you tell me, maybe I'm.
1: No, I think that's totally valid. Right. This is why we want to lead with curiosity and not making assumptions, because maybe the friend group is the only place that this friend is not the girl with the dead mom. Hmm. Right. Maybe this is a bid for a little bit of an emotional balance in the psyche. Right. Some timeshare in the emotional world. Like this is the one place where I don't have to talk about it. So we don't know unless we ask.
0: And if Anna did hear that, then I, want, I would hope that she would swell with pride. <laughs> she gets to provide a kind of respite care to her friend yeah. during this really challenging time. And then yeah. at least she would know. She would know. Yeah. And
1: you can say, exactly, <laughs> then she would know. And you can also say, like, if that's what happens, then, you know, Anna, you could say something like, I am so glad that I'm the off switch mm. for you. I do want you to know that you don't always have to be on around me. And if you need to have a moment, you know, to talk about it or to run to the bathroom while we're out having a good time, it is OK to do that, too. But I am more than happy to be your off switch. It really is just a meeting on common ground, understanding what the person at the center of that, this grieving friend, needs, just being curious, right? Like we're gonna make we're gonna make our choices, we're gonna make our decisions based on what the grieving person yeah. tells us and go from there.
0: And however this goes for Anna and her friend, I feel real confident that there's so much learning here for Anna, right? In asking this question, in listening to you and I sort of teasing it apart. Anna has a chance to look at her own relationship with grief, her own, that, that she has been, her relationship with grief is an internalization of all the messages she's been given her whole life. She doesn't come up with these notions of proper grief from her own psyche. It is all the internalized messages that she's gotten. So by asking this question, by reimagining what she might, how she might support this friend, Anna is learning and she's kind of growing her capacity for sitting in the uncomfortable, messy stuff.
1: Absolutely, yeah. There's a bravery in there too, right? So I started out with like, first thing top of mind, what I hear in the question mm-hmm. is judgment, with love at the root of it, and I, I think we can sort of close up this conversation about Anna and her question with really underscoring the bravery in asking. Absolutely.
0: Oh, all right. Thank you, Anna in Italy, for this question, and to the listeners of the show. I hope that I have every confidence. That this conversation has given you new perspectives to take away and new tools. And Megan, I'm so glad that you've been here. Any, any final thoughts before? I also, the next thing I'm going to do is ask you to share with us how to find you, but any final thoughts as we move to closing? I would say, okay, so two things. One, if you've been listening to this conversation
1: and just feeling like, oh my God, I'm never talking to anyone again because all of this just sounds really exhausting and complicated and I'll screw it up and I just like, I don't I don't have the bandwidth. Um, I feel mm-hmm. you. Remember that you have uh, your whole life to experiment with these things. You do not have to suddenly just jump into them. So practice on small things, practice on those small everyday things, uh, stubbing your toe, mm. whatever, right? Practice on the small things so that in the event of an emergency. These things aren't new to you and they don't feel quite so daunting. So do yourself that favor. Do yourself the solid of uh, practicing on lower stakes Mm -hmm. things. That's going to feel a lot more approachable. Lead with not knowing what you're doing. This is like speaking of elephants in the room, like, you know how if you're feeling really nervous before a a public talk or something and you get up on stage and you pretend you're not nervous, things are not going to go well for you. But if you get up on stage and you say, I'm really nervous.
0: Yeah. Things
1: get better. Right. So it's okay to be nervous about this stuff. And it is okay to say, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm really scared. And I want to do it mm-hmm. anyway. Because I love you. And I'm willing to be awkward so that you feel heard. Oh, it's just like gorgeous. that's yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: It's okay to be an awkward human because being human is awkward.
0: It sure is. And around grief, it's really awkward. And yeah. your work as a grief educator is so valued and so necessary. And I know if this is the first time you all have been introduced to Megan, you are welcome. <laughs> and then make sure, <laughs> make sure that uh, Megan, make sure that people know how to find you. Where do you want folks to go to dive into more of your magnificence? So
1: many places. Since we are uh, in studio right now, I'm going to lead with the new podcast hereafter with Megan Devine. That is me. Everybody, you can find it wherever you find your podcast. And in fact, Dr. Solomon is going to be a guest on my show. Hereafter with Megan Devine is a great place to enter these conversations about grief of any kind, which are really conversations about being human. You can also find me on all of the social media channels at Refuge in Grief. Those are really our griever communities where we really talk about the reality of being human in a world that breaks your heart and how we show up for ourselves and how we show up for others. There's lots of grief resources there. There is the Writing Your Grief community Mm -hmm. for people who are going through really devastating life circumstances and feeling like they can't talk to anybody else because nobody gets it. We get you. You can find that at uh, RefugeInGrief.com. You can find my books, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand Wherever You Get Books. Make sure to visit your independent Mm -hmm. booksellers, everybody. Uh, then, then the um, it's not really a companion journal because you can either use it with It's Okay or just on its own. The uh, guided grief journal, How to Carry What Can't Be Fixed, also available wherever you get books. A little fun tip on that one: um, if you get the How to Carry What Can't Be Fixed journal and you really want it spiral bound, you can take it to your local print shop and they will spiral bound it for you so that it lays uh-huh. flat as you're drawing in it, super cool trick that one of my listeners uh, told me about. So I, I like to spread that gospel that you can make any book accessible that way. Just ask your print shop. Mm. And the website for the grievers community for most of the, the things that you've heard me mention is refugeingrief.com. But for clinical trainings and for that kind of information, including how to leave questions for the podcast hereafter, you can visit megandivine.co. And that is E G A N d-e-v-i-n-e dot c-o and i like to spell it because people spell megan in yeah. lots of different ways and usually they spell divine wrong so d-e folks not d-i megan divine dot c-o and i would love to hear from you and all. we
0: will have all of that linked in the show notes we make it super easy for you all to keep up with all the things that that you're doing it's it's so important i send clients your way and, and I reference your work all the time thank you so much for everything that you do and thank you for being here today
1: Yeah, you are so welcome. Anytime.
0: Thank you, Megan, for bringing your wisdom to reimagining love. I'm so grateful for Megan's work around grief. It's a topic that we don't talk nearly enough about, even though it impacts all of us, no matter who we are. You can find links to Megan's work and community in our show notes. I hope that you'll check them out. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.